Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. This week, I'd like to welcome David Gray. David is the SVP Tenant Rep Workplace Strategy at Colliers International and is located in Silicon Valley. He's been really busy crushing COVID by assisting his global clients with the agile hub and spoke fine-tuning that's needed right now. Missing speaking live at workplace conferences in 2021, he was able to fill the void last October at IFMA's World Workplace event and will be speaking again at November Cornet's Summit 2022. Looking forward, David will be co-hosting the 100th pandemic-influenced Mosh Pit, where the edge of workplace is debated by dozens of influencers from CRE leaders to applied anthropologists. Everyone is welcome to join the Zoom waiting room any Friday from 11.45 a.m. Pacific. Be forewarned, though, it's engaging and addictive. Hey, David, uh, very excited to have you join me today on our podcast. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm really honored to be here. I've listened to a number of them, first-class stuff that you're doing. Um, I am a commercial real estate broker representing just occupiers, tenants, users for over, are you ready, a third of a century. So I've been at this a long time, and I've always always been baffled by people that uh, that are more talented than me because they can do both sides, landlords and tenants, and maybe not just high-tech space. They can do um, a retail, hotels, apartments, maybe even homes. I'm not that good. I just stay in one <laughs> narrow lane, and that's you know taking care of the occupiers. Now, I'm based in the Silicon Valley, but, I mean, the world has been increasingly steamrolling flat the last 10 years, and obviously the last two and a half exponentially. And so my book of business is scattered all over the globe, and I, I've got some metrics that people can check out on my LinkedIn resume that would bore anyone listening right here to death. <laughs> but But I stay extremely active. I, you know, even with that uh, breadth of experience, I see a, I, I see, you know, with my boots on, you know, holding on to the, to the laptop, hand pointed <laughs> through the wind, you know, 20 years from now, I'll get them all. So I, I really love what I do. And, and especially now, right. This is such a great time. I totally agree. I think, you know, I have these conversations almost daily with just, how much uncertainty that lies ahead of us and how people feel very nervous about that. But the folks that are in corporate real estate kind of are excited by that because it's, it, I think it's a, it's an opportunity to think differently, to do differently and to, you know, be more creative than just mechanical and how, and how we do things. Right. Um, so you said that you obviously are, representing the occupier view, obviously being in the brokerage space, you know, there's a little bit of tension between, you know, the occupier and the broker, at least that's kind of the, 
the dialogue that I've been seeing online in terms of, you know, brokers are people are coming back to work and, you know, companies are signing leases. And then on the occupier side, it's how much space can we get out of? <laughs> so what are you seeing from from your side? I think that's a great uh, framing, Sandra. The uh, the occupiers are getting pressure from their board or those that hold the financial purse strings to say, listen, we've we're experts now. We've. We've read a lot, and we have a few examples that we can toss out anecdotally and, and point to the fact that, you know, we just don't need space the way we've needed it in the past. And I think where the, the rub comes is is a lack of stepping back and harnessing all the different professionals from CRE tech uh, to architects to anthropologists. That's right. I use the A word. All of the anthropologists and architects have to get together and agree that ethnography and a visioning session go hand in hand. And that is the rub right there. If if we start talking about you got to come back or the only way to get synergy is we're, we're face to face and don't worry about that one hour commute, it's falling on deaf ears. We're already seeing senior VPs at some of the largest high-tech companies in the world, Fortune 5, so I won't pick on any names, resigning because they're told from the top of the pyramid, well, you know, have your team come in here, you know, three, four, five days a week, right? Right? No, they don't need to. So the challenge is marshalling the resources of CRE tech, um, people that can identify with individuals through surveys and watching how they behave and react, bring all of these tools to the table and figure out what is it a user needs. Now, quick epilogue to that. It's happening that way right now. I'm just, you know, reflecting what my eyes are picking up. And that is that, you know, one third of the companies are going out and making deals uh, at the rate of 2019. So work on my grammar there. The bottom line is it's two-thirds slower deal flow, and that gets a little bit of anxiety going to people in the brokerage industry that perhaps have, you know, relied on a particular book of business moving at a particular rate. You have to throw all that out the window, too. And once you do and get back to those basics of, you know, what is it that our people want? How do we recruit, retain the best talent to have the most impressive earnings per share? then everyone's on the same page. It's interesting when you were talking about uh, ethnography. So I actually had a, a conversation, many conversations actually with a few anthropologists over the over the years. Um, and just thinking about, you know, pre-pandemic, how that function played into decision making, right? So usually you you tried to get perspectives from all angles in the business. So from leadership, middle management, and the employees, and then you mash that data up to say, okay, this is the direction that we can all agree on in terms of the way the way forward. Um, but that was based on, you know, obviously a time where the expectation was such that everybody was working from the office. Now that we've, you know, have all had the experience of working outside of the office for the last 30 plus months, do you think that ethnography or the role of ethnography should occur now, or do you think that that should be something that comes in after the decisions have been made about what role real estate actually plays within the organization? Because it feels almost like leadership needs to make a decision around that that is 
I think takes into consideration people's feelings, but people are very open and there's, I mean, every report that you look at around how people are feeling about space seems to point in the direction that they don't want to come back to the office five days a week. That's a no brainer. And so it's kind of that push and pull again is, you know, do you do the ethnography first to kind of validate that? Yes, that's the direction that you need to go to, or do you make the decision and then bring in the troops to basically understand, okay, now what do we need in order to satisfy our, our workforce? Well, a little bit of mechanics here in terms of the adoption process. Um, you and I tossed around ethnography, and we've had many conversations with uh, PhDs in applied anthropology. So it's it's second nature uh, to us to recommend that in. It's going to take traditional C-suites quite a while to feel comfortable that that is a true cog in their measurement watch. So go to them now, introduce your favorite applied anthropologist to leadership and explain what it is that they do. Granted, right now, the data to measure is weak compared to what it uh, will slowly <laughs> reveal itself over the next year or two. But you want to get that second nature, just as those decision makers right now may say, oh, of course, uh, having a an interior designer uh, that understands the, the latest trends in use I want on board. They get that. But reaching past the top architects and interior designers, the, the idea of connecting with people in your organization at all levels is paramount. So you either have to have a, you know, if you're a 10,000 employee company, you can't have a visioning session with 10,000 people, but you want the voices of 10,000. Those voices will feel a lot more authentic when somebody uh, asks them a question and then observes all the things they do relative to that question. No, I don't need uh, snacks. That's not a bonus for me. I just would <laughs> rather be at home. Meanwhile, there's empty wrappers all over their their cubicle. So the aggressiveness of an applied anthropologist is is unparalleled when it comes to social design. So I'm going to say something just kind of as I, I think put myself sort of in the shoes of someone in the C-suite, because I've heard these comments before of it just all feels so fluffy, right? It's, it's right. kind of, it's like the stuff that you do it, but it's like, are you really going to use that information to think about how you're going to plan for space? Because really, at the end of the day, from a corporate real estate perspective, and maybe even from a business perspective, it really always comes down to dollars and cents, right? It's like you need to be able to convert whatever it is that you're going to do that it's going to either generate revenue or it's going to reduce cost one way or the other. And so when you think about all of these conversations that are going on around human-centric workplace, uh, you know, the way ethnography is going to fit into how you're going to think about space, it feels, as I said, it feels very fluffy. Do you think the C-suite would be open to that or would their reaction continue to be, like, just trying to understand, like, what would the value be to the C-suite when you think about it from the perspective of cost and or revenue generation going forward? Well, I mean, I, I'd answer answer that with a rhetorical question. You know, who are the companies that are successful right now and have been successful in the past? They're the ones that listen to their employees. If you want to 
listen to your employees, you have to walk down a pathway that may seem uncomfortable. It may seem like, isn't this fluffy? Well, there's structure in the fluffiness because you're asking people specifically what is it they believe they want, and they don't necessarily know. So everyone's on a journey together from the most latest hire to the first badges in the company. So they have the same uh, objective. They have the same OKRs, or they should disband. Anyone that's not profoundly motivated where they're at should move on down the road. And it starts with the individuals. And then I think it's, you know, hopefully shepherded by great leadership that says, I want to ask you what you think you want. Tell me why. And yeah, let's make sure that our earnings per share are up, up and away. And how else are they going to be up, up and away unless talent is extremely profoundly engaged. In 2019, we had barely a third of the working population in North America, you know, bonded to their job, to their boss, to the mission statements of the companies and the values supporting that. Only 30%? Just ridiculous. That's 2019. Now, granted, there's been a great resignation and, and some of the people that didn't feel you know, engaged, got pushed over the edge by circumstances. But we're going forward in a situation, I believe, that people are going to look at themselves, every single one of those employees, and say, you know, am am I happy here? How can I be happy? And they will reveal that. And I don't think they would have revealed that quite as readily in 2019. So it's there's an exciting opportunity here. Yeah, I think the point that you made about, you know, when you ask people that, you know, they don't really know what they want holds a lot of truth. I mean, I remember back in the day when, you know, you were serving employees, the responses that you got was always within the frame of reference of what was familiar to them. So if you were asking them to think out in the future, like imagine asking someone 10 years ago about working flexibly and what does that mean to you? It's kind of like, well, you're always going to go based on the boundaries of what you're allowed to do in the organization because you're like, well, realistically, that's not something that we would be allowed to do. And I find the same to be true also when you're talking to the executives in an organization, when you start talking about just new ways of working or thinking about different ways of doing things is that, you know, their frame of reference is based on how it's always been done. And so it's the the challenge is how do you break down those barriers? How do you bring those two worlds together. That's, I think, the biggest challenge is, is that, you know, you can only see so far. I sort of look at what's happened in the past, uh, you know, 30 months. To me, you know, the pandemic basically forced change management on anyone. It's mind-boggling to me that someone would choose to ignore the reality of what has transpired, is to say, change is upon us, whether you like it or not, to force going back to something that was I don't think is a good idea unless you can prove otherwise. Like, I mean, if there's actually proof as to why that is actually required, but, you know, making claims that, you know, something is better or worse without really anything substantiating it or better yet using data that was captured pre pandemic (laughs) times are different. Times are changing. Right. So the uncertainty, as I said, the uncertainty is, is very uncanny for a lot of companies because they don't know, you know, what's next? You know, there's a term in our organization that we use is, you know, this blind spot that's emerging where you've relied on data for the longest time. 
The way that you use the data, though, is going to be different as you think about this future of work. Before, you know, you looked at occupancy. Okay, how many heads are in a building? You know, and then it's, well, relative to what? Is it relative to headcount? Is it relative to future headcount? Is it relative to your as-built seats? This whole concept of flexible working, like you, when you and I were talking before we, we press record, you were talking about the, the three, two reference that's being made or kind of, you know, coming up with these arbitrary programs without really substantiating it and understanding the behaviors of people. And I think the need to understand behaviors is increasingly important where maybe it wasn't before, but you've also got then the flip side of that, which is the privacy aspect of, well, a lot of companies will basically say that, you know, the, there's a privacy factor and it's the reason why you can't look at data, which I think is a bunch of hogwash too. <laughs> so just wanted to get your thoughts, like just, you know, as you think about data and analytics and kind of how you used to use analytics before versus what is the use case for using data and analytics today, do you see there being a substantial difference? It, absolutely. And I don't think it was used enough in 2019 and, and before. And it's taken uh, a lot of internal teams quite some time to adopt sensors and analyze what the sensors mean and realize they have to do bed check at the same time, meaning, as we both know, take a look at what's going on with that sensor data. Okay, oh gosh, these, you know, this is a different person coming into the space. Oh, this is the same person. This person's actually by themselves. The sensor was off. There was a lot of checking to be careful and then utilizing the data. Paramount, no question. Now we're in this transition. It's going to be different how we interpret it. But before we get to that, we have to be really on, especially those that sell the technology and the services of, of metricing everything. Yeah, it's going to be richer and deeper and more needed than ever before over time. You know, we just are having people come back at five, maybe eight percent. If you really look at utilization, I mean, just start with parking lots yeah. if you're in that type of environment and, and back out, re-engineer who's in the space. So, Asking the question right now in a way of social anthropology of, hey, we've got some data. We know it's just a thumbnail, but we want to ask the people that are using this space what purposes they find from the space. Whoops. A lot higher percentage of the people really like the fact that they're spread out in what feels like a library and more and more people are leaving uh, uh, noisy, boxed in, distracting environments in the in the home front and the coffee shop in exchange for coming into the 10,000 square foot open office that has, you know, 15 people uh, in it. Some personalities feel at ease in that situation. So tracking that going forward, we're going to go through uh, a few waves back and forth. The, the surf is going to come in, come out, come in, come out. What are we really finding here? Um, but I think one thing that's really important, you said it earlier, and I want to weave into this data discussion, is we're not going back to 2019. I don't think anybody would because the, there's 8 billion people that were, have been, have been forced to turn to the same page of the book. So whether they disagree with what's, what the remedy is for this particular page, we're reading 
the same paragraph over and over. It's Groundhog Day. You know, don't say, well, that's enough. Step back and say eight billion people are have acknowledged that this is happening. Okay, let's address that elephant in the room. That's not fluffy. That is structure and measuring it as best you can, even when you only have a little bit of information as people aren't coming back at the rate that most of the C-suite would hope for. Measuring it is what it's all about. Yeah, I completely agree. I think what's interesting, too, is, you know, we talk about, obviously, corporate real estate technologies like sensors, people counters, which obviously are, you know, making their place in the world of corporate real estate just because of what they can do that can't be replicated through observation studies, you know, any sort of manual attempt, even surveying for that matter. It's just the sheer volume of data capture that gives you credibility in such a small amount of data. So, for example, we used to rely on badging data and used to look at historical data uh, and you, you had to wait, right? You, it's kind of like you started to see the data normalize usually at like the three to six month window. The longer you waited, the more reliable the data was. What's interesting about sensor data is that you don't have to wait that long. Like you could do an install Monday and by Friday, you'll already start to see some consistency in behavior because of the fact that you're capturing data literally like every 30 seconds. You know that someone's there or not there or, you know, you've got 20% of your people at desks between 10 and 11, and then 40% of people using meeting rooms the rest of the afternoon. So you start to see kind of the shift in behaviors just as you're monitoring the space on a regular ongoing basis to really understand how are the behaviors actually changing day to day and then week to week, month to month, right? So obviously still that needs to be able to look at what's changing is going to be dependent on capturing that historical data. What's also interesting is how the data is also going to be used for forward looking. So as we talk about things like predictive analytics and using AI to sort of help people understand, the people that are using the space understand that when they're there, what are the types of environments that are best suited to how they want to work, right? So there's kind of that element of if there's an interaction between a human and some sort of technology application, that data that's being captured can help the user basically have a better experience in uh, in the office. But I think what's interesting is even taking a step back, right? Because I sort of look at it and say, yeah, I'm about probably 15 years ahead in terms of how you use technology in the workplace where you're doing mashups of data long before the sensors came up. The reality is, is that a lot of the data can come from sources that companies already have in their environment. The reality is, is that, you know, most companies kind of stop at, okay, let's look at the badging data, for example. You get your occupancy number and then everybody goes nuts with planning because it's like, well, you know, only 50% or 60% are in. And that means, you know, we're at a sharing ratio, a two to one, cut the space by 50%, call it a day, right? (laughs) A little bit more complicated than that. Um, But what's interesting, at least one of the things that I discovered fairly early on in my career is, uh, you know, how you apply, how you bring context into the data analysis. So people have always criticized, you know, the quantitative and the qualitative side of data analytics, right? So that anything that you're doing where you're measuring is quantitative. It doesn't have the qualitative side, which is how people feel or what people want or kind of that stuff, which typically would come from your ethnographic studies, your surveys, those types of things that you do. 
I sort of have been challenging that a little bit because I'm seeing more and more as I dig into some of the newer data right now that those patterns, the, the new patterns that we're seeing in the data, because you're capturing data at such a high frequency, actually appears. So you can see the behaviors. If you know or you're familiar with a certain behavior, what a certain behavior looked like when you were in a space observing people, it actually translates very well on the data set. You just got to know that this type of behavior means this, right? So case in point, we had um, some data that we came across for a client just recently, and we got to like the lowest level of detail. And one of the things that I observed was these like short meeting, well, use of meeting spaces. So people going into a meeting room, either as an individual uh, where they were dwelling in that space, which is the new term for occupancy, I think that's the new it's the new occupancy um, where dwell is basically the continuous use of a space. And so you're seeing people that are dwelling in a meeting room for, say, five minutes, 10 minutes at a time by themselves. And you're like, what? Somebody be in the meeting room by themselves for five or 10 minutes. Well, from previous experience, it's probably to have a telephone conversation because there's a room that's close by to a workspace that they don't need to walk to the other side of the office to use the telephone room, right? So that would be sort of a typical behavior. Another example would be a 15-minute, uh, you know, or, or again, same duration, anything less than half an hour, really, where there's maybe two people or maybe even three, but usually you see two people that are now in a room together. There's no booking to that meeting room, but they're in that room together for that same period of time. So that to me is more like a, a one-on-one. It could be a coaching. It could be something like that where again, it's, it's, it's unstructured. It's not scheduled. It's more ad hoc. It speaks to, Hey, there's a need that if this is happening in the organization on an ongoing basis, maybe you don't have the sufficient spaces or the access to those spaces in order to be able to support that kind of behavior. And it makes me think of, you know, the many discussions with designers in the past around activity-based, you know, design where you, again, you did just that, where you looked at how people were using space, and then you use that information to inform the future of design. And how now it's kind of like, well, do you even need to do that? Because if you've got the right technology capturing the information, you basically can pick up on those patterns. Now, yeah, you don't know how people feel about it, whether they like it or they don't, which I think that there's still that need for for surveys. But I think it's interesting because a lot of people have said have just knocked the data argument out the window because it's like, well, it's just the quantitative side. And it's so much more than that. Right. Agreed. I mean, we are moving to cultures where everybody's on board answering a survey that uh, describes their archetype and in some companies putting it on their signature block. So uh, and, and that may sound a little fluffy to some uh, leaders that have been around even longer than me. But if we know somebody views themselves as a methodical thinker that really likes to go deep and deep and work by themselves and then report back for other team meetings and share their findings, that person is in the office, their badge is swiped, and 20 other people that are like them are all in the office. And, but n- none of the people who describe themselves as aggressive wood archetype, you need to get it off your desk now, jump to conclusion. None of them or a handful are just in the office. Yeah. What is that? Maybe that tells us something. So 
qualitative comes with the quantitative. We are measuring everything, and soon people will, I'm praying, show hands together in praise sign emoji. I am praying that everyone relaxes and says, yeah, you can track my cell phone when I when I yes. flip it on to company mode. Absolutely. Of course, I want to let you know, am I in go mode and you want to know that I'm at the Starbucks or a meeting with the client or I'm in the office with the one-on-one or I'm at the auditorium or I'm, I'm gone at a sporting event, but who's with me? Well, right. I'll, I'll answer that if you want to be particular about <laughs> me later. And I think that needs to happen. I think we all have to address the two-way street. It's not about, I'm not even saying trust and verify. I'm talking about you're profoundly motivated about the mission of the company and there's trust both ways. And they know I'm working when I'm at home next to the kitchen sink. And they know sometimes I'm taking a nap in the office. So it's not about monitoring. It's about learning what we want to do. And that's the next level of ethnography is taking the, the personalities that we all report ourselves to be and have it validated by somebody who says, yeah, that's that person. And now where are they and what are they using? We are going to discover, if people haven't already, that we all have multiple sides. They're called moods. Sometimes even the chatty, loquacious David Gray likes to go to the library, heads down, and not be interrupted. And if that library had books lined all over it, I had flashbacks to the best university in the world, the University of California at Berkeley, I would just go, I feel, I feel like I can drill down deeper than I ever have. This is wonderful, especially if someone started talking uh, not far from me and somebody dressed up in caricature of a librarian with horn rim glasses and, and a 1950s outfit came waddling over and said, shh, that's what we need. We need activity-based work that is theatrical. <laughs> I love that. I'm getting a visual. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> but I think we're 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 kind of we're walking down the same path here together. We know this is a slow roll, but we know that the data is really going to be a key factor. Those that use it and have the most granulation with it are going to be those that win. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, it's, you said two things that I think are really interesting. So number one, you know, the fact of layering on the data to really understand. So you talked about the archetypes, but and and that's to some extent also part of how you use the data better, which is, yeah, you've got your occupancy data, whatever source it is that it comes from. But then it's when you start to layer on things like the demographics, the hierarchy of the people that are being reported, depending on whatever it is that the company allows you to integrate. Like lately, we've been talking to customers that are also, you know, layering in like their commutes, right? So they want to understand what's the correlation between, like actually quantify the correlation between the commute distance, the commute time, and the occupancy. So how often are they actually coming to the office, right? And so just think of how marketing segments their customer, right? Just to say, okay, we're going after this particular customer, and this is the way we need to market to this customer. It's the same thing in corporate real estate. You're basically segmenting your data. And by segmenting the data, I believe, is how you're going to be able to think about your future workforce. So think about it. If you've got 
a group of boomers that live out in suburbia that are commuting in more than 60 minutes or whatever, yeah, they're only going to come into the office maybe once or twice a week versus the young, hip and happening, you know, uh, gen, what generation are we in now? Gen Z? Yeah. Uh, not to date myself, um, that, you know, is in the downtown core, wants to be in the office. They don't have a car. They're you know within walking distance and the convenience of being able to just walk across the street and go into into the office to be with their friends, to socialize and whatever. Two totally different stages of life. Right. And very different behaviors that are being observed in terms of how they're going to interact with space. Now, does one is one more valuable than the other? No, not really. Do the, those two worlds need to come together? Absolutely. And that's kind of the stuff that you see when people start talking about, oh, you know, how do you mentor, you know, these, the, the young folks that are joining these organizations? You know, they have to be in the office. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. But the people that are supposed to mentor them actually are not coming into the office because they've done their time. And so, or they've earned their time, as they like to say, where they don't have to come into the office as often, right? And so I think that's the piece that was the bigger eye-opener for me was when you start to segment occupancy data based on demographics like tenure, uh, age, even things like, you know, salary bands, right? You start to see behaviors that are very, very interesting based on these different things about people. And it's kind of teetering in a little bit into people analytics, right? Because people analytics, obviously, they're more around things about their people, you know, but the analytics that they do are very HR related and they don't really sort of step into the corporate real estate territory. And so I think there's a shared opportunity to bring the HR data into the corporate real estate world that when you bring those two data sets together, the possibilities of thinking about things like where should our office be located, like the whole idea of decentralization. Well, look at where your people live. If you're trying to minimize commutes, if you're trying to minimize greenhouse gas emissions, which some companies do that, you want to start looking at that and bringing that into your analysis so that you understand the decision that you're making and the impact that it's going to have on the people that you're trying to bring into the office, right? The same thing with decisions around like amenities, like we've been hearing quite a bit actually in the last while around, you know, how do you entice people to come back to the office? And you probably heard this more, more than I have around, you know, organizations looking at bringing in amenities into their organization to try to entice people or sort of more of that hotel experience. Or the last thing I heard was, you know, putting restaurants in offices. And it's like, is that really going to entice people to bring in? I mean, you already have existing spaces in society that do that. And so is that really needed? Is that really necessary? And it's kind of like, where are you getting the data to to make those decisions to say this is what we're going to do because we believe it's going to bring people back to the office. It's kind of picking something out of thin air and saying, let's try this and see if it works. But I don't know that, you know, any CFO would be willing to invest in an experiment and then realize that it's not really going to work. <laughs> well, especially if that experiment costs millions of dollars, like a high-end uh, cafeteria. In principle, we've seen the success of the cafeteria. We've also seen how they've been underutilized. The purpose has not been maximized. People come in for a couple of uh, eating sessions, and then Google invents three uh, eating uh, periods and then fills it in with coffee during the day. And then someone gets the fact that it's a multi-purpose room. What else can be done with it when those busier periods 
disappear. But yeah. you can't gamble millions of dollars based on, oh, I, I'm sure we can find a use for this. Of course not. You can experiment with some things. You know, uh, there's a, in uh, the hospitality, you brought this up. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, working with local farmers, uh, uh, restaurants. Hey, would you like to do a pop-up here? Come in at this particular time. Kind of a, a hybrid version of the food truck. And so maybe there's an affordable entree, so to speak. But also the idea that people want it. And how do you find out they want it? You have to ask the question, is this something you would like? And we're not seeing the big amenities woo people like they have in the past. Everyone's in a state of change. They realize that uh, I think a higher percentage of people are looking at themselves saying, what profoundly motivates me? How am I going to be happy? I mean, it's not just the 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 social construct of bragging that I have uh, a 15 minute commute because the company moved towards me. Uh, it, it's it's the energy, the well being that you pick up uh, to contribute back to the company. And when I say the company, I mean your team. I mean the people that are sharing the values you share and are trying to reach targets that you're attempting to reach and. You're reaching those targets because you're communicating together. You can communicate like you and I are doing right now across one of the longest halls in North America from Toronto to the Silicon Valley, and and it works terrifically. But when I see you live and in person in Nashville at World Workplace next week, that is going to be the icing on the cake or the glue, rather, that that holds me closer to what are we trying to do and what else have you heard since then and what about this hey do you think this idea will work i don't know let's let's share that data absolutely peer seller we'll share that data i think there's more collaboration co-creation uh among so many different optics and competitors in narrow disciplines than there's ever been before that's part of the excitement right yep yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's interesting what you also said about values, right? The fact that, you know, we've, we've had this time to sort of rethink or just really reevaluate what we value the most. And everybody obviously has a, a different priority when it comes to stuff like that. I think what's really interesting is, you know, you've probably heard as of late the whole story around quiet quitting. What does that actually mean? Uh, I heard recently, uh, I've seen recently, uh, voluntary demotion also popping up. So people kind of stepping back from the climb of the corporate ladder, the hustle culture that, you know, we all sort of live through, I mean, you know, from a from a generational point of view and how the younger generations are kind of they they want to pursue success, but at the same token they want to have a life, right? It's not just about the career, it's not just about climbing the ladder, it's not about you know, just making money. There's all these other aspects that make you a whole person, right? And so um, I think that that's going to be interesting as well, because as you look at sort of, again, the generational mixes of people in the organization, you know, as the older generations start to, you know, retire or sort of move on and just kind of choose that, okay, they're done, the younger generations have a slightly different perspective on productivity, 
from how we thought about productivity and the idea around, you know, taking initiative or taking that extra step where they're just doing their job. Right. And so it's what is that motivator? What is like you were saying about, you know, there's different things that motivate different people to be their best from a productivity point of view. Um, and so how what are your thoughts on, on those sort of stories that are that are emerging? I'm excited about the the human data points that are emerging. You look at Gen Z that I, I think some of my uh, of, of the young baby boomers and older ex gens, you know, get together and go like, oh, you know what they 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 may be authentic, but you know they they don't realize that you have to get into the office, you have to do this, you have, you have to do nothing. They're not and then they're not chasing uh, the dollars the way that bracket of people did when they were 26 years old. I can feel the difference. When I was 26, it was about being the first person into the office, you know, having the coffee on and then going, yeah, that's right. I did that. And, <laughs> and they've gone to a next a next level. And they're sitting side by side, a couple, and elbows touching, and it's quiet in the room. And pull back the curtain, take a closer look. They're texting back and forth with each other. Or they're, 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 they're sharing humorous clips with each other and, and having an intimate experience. The, the older generations that did not grow up with tremendous amounts of, uh, of AV, uh, besides, uh, a rock concert or two, <laughs> it's, t- it's time to take a look and learn from this group that's coming up. I think the millennials and the Zs can, who are now about to hit the 50% of total labor mark are really reshaping what the targets are. The targets are about productivity and purpose. The only chance this planet has of being around several generations down is because of the attitude of People coming up that care about community, that care about everyone having enough resources, because when it gets drier and the temperature goes up three or four degrees, I mean, uh, not as much food is going to get produced. And and it it could be a very challenging situation. At least we have uh, a wide swatch of people of the youngest workers that this is a paramount to them. And so we can learn a tremendous amount from those sort of data analytics. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think ESG was on a call actually a couple of weeks ago. There was someone uh, who was talking about uh, just that. He was a younger, I think he was a Gen Z. And we were just talking about, you know, uh, ESG calculations and kind of how does, you know, the metrics that we pull out of corporate real estate analytics feed into that. I mean, obviously the commutes, everybody knows about that, but there's other opportunities there as well. And one of the things that he said that really sort of, amazed me was, you know, he said, you know, if I was making a decision from a, an employer perspective and all things were equal, I would actually look at their ESG policies. But he says it's not just about what's written in their their manual. It's the actions that they're actually taking. Are they actually following through? So there's that level of integrity of you say that you care about something, but do you really? And, you know, people are looking very, very closely at that and probably the younger generation more than the older generation is. That might be a bit of a, a statement to make, but I think that there's some truth to that is that, you know, the older generation seems to just kind of look past it because it's not as important as it is to the younger generation who are going to be picking up the slack because 
they have to, right? You're so spot on. And, you know, again, hats off to them. I just I really enjoy when I get a, a weekly workplace gathering that I do, you know about. And when I get a couple of Gen Z's on, they can be irreverent. They, you know, it's lunch hour in the, the Silicon Valley. So three of them were on uh, a couple months ago, them, but the three, and these are, I mean, these, these are top one percenters, very uh, driven, but you know, they're, they're eating their lunch. They're talking while they're eating their lunch. They're <laughs> muting the phone, yelling at mom and saying, Hey, you know what it's like living at home. And they come back online. I'm mean, like, wow, these are, they're not getting carried up with the, you know, the X gen boomers idea of building uh, a corporate, or a personal brand. They're just, they're just going, they're going for it. They're getting things done. And they know that just because some uh, fossil says, you know, you should really get off that, uh, that, that little mechanical device you have there. And, and just, I want you to go on a a walk with your best friend. Okay. You have no idea. I got, I got 30 best friends and I'm talking to them every hour. (laughs) Do you think that there's an element of, uh, professionalism or let's say a loss of professionalism. So when you're talking about like, you know, the Gen, Gen Zers, you know, eating their lunches and kind of, you know, who cares? Like you just mute, you know, yell at your, your mom or whoever. And thinking about our experiences where, you know, if your dog barks or somebody knocks on the door, it's like, oh my God, it's the worst thing ever because you're working from home and people know that you're working from home. It's almost like you're trying to, to maintain this sort of professional appearance versus the younger generation, which is this is me, right? If there isn't sort of that division between the work me and the home me, it's the same person. And I think maybe that's where there's a, there's a difference and, and why there's a, you know, a lot of conflict, if you will, between like just kind of this idea about, you know, entitlement of like, you know, the older generation saying that, oh, you know, this, the younger generations feel entitled to certain things. And it's like, but they do things differently and are quite successful in what they do. It's just that it gets discounted because it's not done the same way that you and I maybe would have would have done it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that last sentence is what it's all about. I mean, I would tell everyone that's over 41 uh, that that's still active working, relax and learn from everyone who's below uh, 41. They're they're being their authentic self for their last million minutes and you're being who you are for your last million minutes and maybe your last million minutes had been 10 years of working at two companies in the same exact industry congratulations they're they're scattered they've been growing up and they've been fighting the most important part of their education and adoption into work during a pandemic learn from how they're handling that and where they see the future and so I love following a future of work expert who's 26 years old, where a lot of people would smile at that and say, oh, how are they going to be an expert knowing what work is? They haven't put in their million minutes in the office. No, they're exactly what we need, a spokesman, uh, a translator to an entire generation that's going to do some wonderful things, profitability and planet. I'm really excited. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is this is really good. I, um, you know, it's it's funny, too, when I was thinking about, again, that younger generation and just the idea of where 
the office is going to land at the end of the day, right? So going back to that argument of if you've got sort of the younger generations living in the downtown core, sort of city center, that type of thing, that's kind of the lifestyle that they want to live. And suddenly the demand for the offices disappears. So let's fast forward and let's imagine that the boomers are going to make that happen because the boomers make everything happen. Uh, (laughs) um, And then, you know, these offices, you know, disappear and, you know, how does that potentially impact that generation? Because as I said, they're the ones that are living in the city center. So thinking about space as well, I mean, it's a, it's a comment that comes up all the time is that as you get older, you move, you know, your stage of life changes in time. You tend to, you know, move into the suburbs, neighborhoods with a larger home. You've got space, you've got kids, whatever it is that you need, you need the space. You know, someone who's living in a 400 square foot apartment isn't going to want to be there with their significant other working and living, you know, 24 seven, right? So it's that opportunity to get out and about. Now, having said that, there are options, like you don't necessarily have to go to a corporate office to do that. There are like co-working spaces and cafes and other fun places to go and hang out and work. But it comes back down to what you said of, you know, how do you how do you enable your people to feel comfortable to do that? Like when you're talking about the trust and kind of that that part of just enabling people to feel that they could be themselves and work and go to the Jays game or whatever. But, you know, maybe they're, they, they were working late the night before. Just this whole idea of accountability where it needs to be, I think, a little bit looser than what it has been. And there's that element of trust that I think is missing as well. Right. Um, how does that all play into into all of this as well. You said a lot there. I, I'll grab onto uh, two layers of the cake that I, I, I really, uh, that really resonate uh, with me. And first is looking at the use of the uh, central business district, the CBDs, uh, the, the, the top, you know, 63 in the U.S. San Francisco's there and it's failing right now and it needs an overhaul. And it's, I mean, to have San Francisco, you know, pushing beyond 20% vacancy is very unusual. And I think it's probably reaffirmed as we look at the data by the fact that you just have a high percentage of very mobile, uh, tech adept workers and they know they, they can do it. And even if they're told to come in, they, they don't, they don't come in. They just go like, Dude, what are you talking about? You know, you tell me to take out my garbage too? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so these central business districts, though, as they come back to strong versions of their former self with terrific retail, uh, museums and amenities to gather in hardscape areas for, for meetings, for socializing, as it gets back to that, we're going to see, uh, I think a resurgent of residential inside all the CBDs and that I'm a little bit crazy. And I think you always have to have a few people that are a little bit uh, crazy. And I believe that we're like, you can see the, uh, the vertical force scattered of, of residential towers scattered throughout the globe. The most uh, impressive to me in Milan, uh, Bosco verticality. Imagine a Gen Z five, 10 years from now, looking at the cityscape and saying, Oh, the place that's, you know, a big tree, shrubbery and greenery growing out of every balcony. That's where, that's where I live. And that's so powerful. And why not watch that happen when these 40 to 50 year old buildings that really, no offense to the architects of the uh, early 80s, 70s, late 60s, but yeah, 
not really the best looking product. I hope we can find a way to rip the skin off of those, cut a little donut in the middle, and turn those into residential vertical forests. And that's the rejuvenation, because the second part of that is the 15-minute city, being able to get to everything you need and could wish for in a 15-minute walk to wherever you are. You know, that's your Paris. If you're in New York City, you have three 15-minute cities in Manhattan stacked upon each other. You know, which one is yours. That should be the view of those 63 North American cities that are evaluating, you know, what's next in sustainability, what's next in engagement, how do I get people to come in and participate, make this uh, the community. And I think we'll see more small families living in those environments. And we're watching um, as often Portland uh, in the U.S. Uh, swell we're seeing a version of that happening. So I'm really excited for that aspect primarily. So it's interesting that you you raised the 15-minute city uh, point because one of the things that I don't quite understand is the fact that it's very focused on city living. Like, I don't know what it's like in, in the United States, but in Canada, there's a lot of bedroom communities. So people commute into downtown Toronto where the bulk uh, or east or west where the bulk of office jobs are like as soon as you leave the core there's not really much out there like unless you're working in an industrial unit or you're working as an independent and so when you talk about 15 minute cities right away i'm thinking okay urban centers though already kind of have that because they have all the conveniences you know to be able to access restaurants transit you know all that stuff it's more when you get into the suburbs that you're you're kind of stranded because you're like okay there's no bus service or very limited transit services or, you know, anything that would allow you to be able to access the conveniences of just living, let alone work. And so how would the 15-minute city be different than what it is now? Are you talking about an expansion into suburbia? I'm playing with the, uh, you may have heard it at the, at the end of my monologue, I'm playing with the idea that people stay longer in a 15-minute city that provides them safety, security, and convenience, uh, education, a higher percentage are going to be their main education, won't be the socialization of the school, but it will be the, the types of programs that uh, their parents help steer them towards, and they'll be digitally implemented, I suspect. Mm-hmm. But so I see the, the cities uh, working for a longer period of time, even though they some say they're broken right now. And so down the road, people staying longer. But I still think you if you look at the list of the uh, of the great small cities and and into Canada, all the fantastic rural space that people found uh, second lives in as as they continue to uh, work. You may be leaning into the digital communication a bit, I suspect, when you get spread out like that, because you're absolutely right. In these small cities, you know, it's you don't really want to, you know, wait for the the bus and then get picked up at the bus stop and hitchhike and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) I think that's a, a little sticky, but they're. Thinking about a 15-minute grid anywhere is is really the answer there. So if you look at your communities in the Silicon Valley, you know, we have our version of sprawl. We like to say Southern California is, you know, they, they really have suburban sprawl there. That's really, you know, retail strip after retail strip, roads, freeways. Well, you know, we have that, too, in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
And part of the solution set is to get into it, to get out of it. Look at your your downtown of your city and and see how you can get there easily. Can you bike there? You know, you don't have a bike. Get a bike and get on your your bike for 10 minutes and go and enjoy that coffee shop. Work remotely there. So thinking and acting responsibly around not just hopping in a car for an hour plus is not just a financial planet saver. Uh, I think it's an energizer that will allow you to do more profound things with your career. And I think we're going to see the group coming up completely. The millennials get it. The the Gen Zs live and breathe it. So follow the, the use changes. Get ready for the vertical forest. It's coming to a central business district near you. Near you. <laughs> David, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, any final comments? No, I, re- I really appreciate the uh, the honor of being interviewed by you, Sandra. As I've shared with you before, I follow all of your posts. You're extremely bright. You do things right at the edge as well. So, you know, what's coming up in the wave? And I, I hope you'll never stop doing that. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Thank you.